0: Good evening everyone. It's my pleasure to introduce you to the Gray's Inn Lecture for 2020 to be delivered by Lord Carlisle. Before I introduce the speaker, let me say something about the reason why we at Gresham are hosting the Gray's Inn Lecture. If you look at the background that I'm speaking against, you'll see the hall that this should have been delivered in but for uh, COVID. Gray's Inn and the links with Barnard's Inn go back many, many years. This building dates back to at least the mid-13th century. In the 15th century, the property was left to Mr Barnard, and then in 1453, it's established as an inn of chancery, which is a sort of law school linked to Gray's Inn, hence the Grey's Inn lectures. That takes me to tonight's lecture, the title being "De De-Radicalisation, Illusional Reality, and we are lucky to have Lord Carlisle delivering it to us. Let me tell you a little about Lord Carlisle. Clearly you all know that he was a silk but how many of you knew that he took it at the very early age of 36? He was a Deputy High Court Judge, he was an MP for the Lib Dems for many years and became leader of the Welsh Democratic Party. He became a live peer, an independent peer in 1999. He was made the Independent Reviewer for Terrorism Legislation in 2001 to 2011 and was awarded a CBE in 2012 for his services to national security. With that catalogue of experience to bring to bear upon this lecture, I am sure you will find this evening enormously entertaining and informative, and at some points challenging, which is exactly the type of intelligent debate and content that Grey's Inn and Gresham wish to bring to you.
1: I'm delighted to have been asked to deliver the Barnard's Inn reading for 2020. Having done so once before, I'm conscious of the special privilege of being here albeit virtually, this year. I follow many distinguished readers. It's an especial honour to succeed Lord Kerr of Tonnamore, who last year spoke of the challenges which confront judges when required to take on the role of a jury in applying a common-sense approach to the meaning of words. He reflected on the essential role of the courts in upholding individual rights and how best this role can be performed whilst also ensuring that decisions accord with society's broader expectations of justice. His subject is analogous to that of any reviewer of counter-terrorism law, CT as I shall call it, in that the watchwords that make CT law credible are the proportion upholding of rights, the application of common sense, and meeting the expectations that the responsible majority hold, for the law. I feel I should start with some basic credentials which may assist any external recipients of this lecture to conclude that, even if controversial in part, my conclusions are considered and evidence-based above all, in the sense of being able to withstand familiar, sometimes very audible and withering but often inaccurate challenge. I was the independent reviewer of terrorism legislation, ERTL as we call ourselves, from the 11th September 2001 until early 2011. I was appointed just hours before the Twin Towers were hit, an event which changed not merely my professional and public life, but more to the point, dramatically changed international political dynamics. 9-11 caused a fundamental reassessment of the risks and threat of terrorism in almost every country in the world. As a dominant theme, it replaced old Cold War nation-based political thinking. It should be remembered that Islamist terrorism affected Muslim countries at least as deeply as non-Muslim countries, as I shall illustrate a little later. In 2011, I was succeeded by the excellent Lord Anderson of Ipswich QC, He provided an impetus to the subject through his powers of legal analysis and his ethical matrix. At that time, I provided the independent critique to the new coalition government of the revised PREVENT policy that they were to introduce. In 2019, I became the independent reviewer of PREVENT. Halfway through that appointment and after a great deal of the analysis had been done, I was actually judicially reviewed out of office on the grounds that the method of my selection was not an open competition. But apart from residual frustration, I can make no complaint about that outcome and in this lecture will take advantage of my experience for the months that my appointment lasted. So, I've spent much of the last 20 years immersed in issues in which the largest challenge is preventing and dealing with radicalisation to avoid terrorism. Context, of course, always is key to any debate. In the past three months, the context plainly has changed. Over 40,000 British citizens, young and mostly older, have died from COVID-19. It has laid bare to all of us, especially we of older generations, our vulnerability to natural phenomena. It has exposed the frailties of human planning, even when carried out by prominent politicians and scientists, almost all of high quality and all capable of sharing their diverse qualifications and life experiences. It has heightened our sensitivity to events, even elevating an unwise walk in the woods to political crisis status. There is a possibility, I would say, a risk that the volume and outcomes of Covid nineteen may lead some to disregard terrorism or see it now as a minor issue in relative terms. They should not forget that, according to analysis released in November twenty nineteen, for example, by the Institute for Economics and Peace, the IEP the u k was found to be the eu country most affected by terrorism ahead of France, Germany, Belgium and Spain, and outside the EU, ahead of Sri Lanka, Iran, Russia and Israel. They should not underestimate the terrible trauma, both physical and conceptual, that terrorist attacks cause to victims, to the public at large and to the government. The demand for something to be done is never shriller than after a terrorist attack. These are events which citizens at large can find very difficult to understand. Their reaction to terrorists is an illustration, perhaps, of a sentiment expressed by Othello to Desdemona. I understand a fury in your words, but not the words. The anxiety the public experience from terrorism is less easy to comprehend, in my view, than our reaction to disease the threat of an attack by terrorists remains high rated as likely and there is an increased threat from female terrorists and from homegrown self-motivating actors by the end of 2019 there were 231 uk prisoners categorized as terrorists some of whom are right-wing extremists rwe each of whom on release may present a significant threat In that year, 280 people were arrested for terrorism-related offences. In total, since 9-11, 4,682 individuals have been arrested for such offences. In the terrorism context, what has happened since the 2020 pandemic commenced? Does it justify, justify placing terrorism at a lower level of concern? But what I say on this issue is based on research which has been done by my own team at SC Strategy Limited. Terror groups have made efforts to use the COVID-19 global crisis to their advantage, determined to try to capitalise on the new geopolitical realities, and there are certainly such realities. They believe that key national and international institutions will be distracted by the crisis at home that CT, security and military budgets will be reduced as a result of the economic consequences of the pandemic, that instability in conflict zones will continue with increasing numbers of refugees, and that unemployment and economic hardship will impact increasing numbers of potentially vulnerable people across the world. In addition, the lockdowns that have been imposed in many countries May have helped terror groups recruit and radicalize new individuals. Um, So called Islamic State, which I shall call ISIL, attacks in Iraq and Syria have been increasing throughout 2020. Beyond the Middle East, attacks in Mozambique and and in the Philippines show the group's geographic expansion, and attacks in Afghanistan suggest the group will look to capitalize on the US withdrawal. I'll give you a few examples. On the 6th of March this year, ISIL claimed an attack on a ceremony in Kabul, where at least 32 people were killed and 81 wounded when gunmen opened fire. Five days later, on the 11th of March, 18 rockets hit Camp Taji base in Iraq, killing a British medical technician, two Americans and injuring 14 more Americans. The United States believes... The attack was carried out by Kataib Hezbollah, which is Iranian government-backed. On the 25th of March, ISIL claimed an attack on a Sikh religious complex in Kabul, where at least 25 people were killed by a lone ISIL gunman. On the 4th of April, two people were killed and five wounded in a knife attack in romans sur isere in southeast France. When the man was arrested he was found by police on his knees on the pavement, praying in Arabic. On the 15th April, Germany arrested four men originally from Tajikistan who were believed to be plotting attacks on US air bases in Germany. They were also suspected of carrying out critical surveillance of Islam, targeting particularly critics of Islam for their future assassination. The suspects had already procured firearms and ammunition. They're believed to have sworn allegiance to ISIL in early 2019 and to have contacts with high-ranking figures from the group ISIL in Syria and Afghanistan. So those are the facts. I turn now from those bare facts to the impact of COVID-19 on radicalization and terrorism. Radicalization. On the 22nd of April 2020, United Kingdom CT police warned that the impact of COVID-19 and the uh, social isolation it had created could make some vulnerable people more susceptible to radicalisation and other forms of grooming, for example as young people spent more unsupervised time online. Chief Superintendent Adams, the national coordinator for Prevent for the Police, said... Isolation may exacerbate grievances that make people more vulnerable to radicalization, such as financial insecurity or social alienation. Maybe that's stating the obvious, but certainly a view shared by the general director of the French General Directorate for Internal Security, Nicolas Lerner, who argued that confinement can accelerate extremist behaviours when aggravated by other emotional factors. On the other hand, The Guardian reported on the 22nd of April, referrals to prevent are down by more than 50% since the lockdown started on the 23rd March, according to official figures yet to be made public. According to Pool Re, which is the reserve reinsurer of terrorism-related risks, The COVID-19 lockdown has reduced attacks in the short term because it inhibits terrorists from moving about in public and preparing for their attacks. However, terrorist propaganda, especially connected to the far right, has increased during this time. Research by Moonshot CVE, a respected and specialist CVE technology advisor, has found that online engagement with extremist far-right-wing content increased by an average of 13% immediately following the introduction of social distancing and other lockdown measures in the United States, and after 10 days of lockdown, had nearly doubled to a 21% increase in engagement on such content uh, compared with pre-lockdown levels. Other research suggests an increase in Islamist extremist online activity with a rise reported on ISIL-related or inspired material. So far as propaganda is concerned, terrorist propaganda now is focusing on conspiracy theories connected to COVID-19. Terrorism issues have always spawned conspiracy theories, some of them fantastic, and this is no exception and this has already inspired plots and attacks. ISIL and al-Qaeda have taken different approaches in their attempts to take advantage of the pandemic. However, both groups define COVID-19 as a result of God's wrath and call for Western countries to turn to Islam in response. ISIL, in its Al-Naba edition of the 19th March, explicitly called on fighters to carry out attacks while their opponents were vulnerable as a result of the pandemic and security and medical institutions, they said, have reached the limits of their capacity in some areas. The ISIL publication I've mentioned also stated that ISIL should take maximum advantage of the fact that international and national security systems formed to combat ISIL were taking a step back due to the pandemic. ISIL have promoted the explanation that the virus is a manifestation of God's wrath and suggested the pandemic's initial spread in China was divine punishment for China's persecution of Uyghur Muslims. Far-right groups are in on the act too, for they're as opportunistic as any other terrorism group They and individual right-wing extremist supporters are using the ongoing pandemic to advance their movements and ideologies. For example, they are using COVID-19 to promote conspiracy theories, target minority communities and call for extreme violence. They've been using the pandemic to increase calls for violence and adapting anti-Semitic speech and ideas to incorporate COVID-19. According to the United States Federal Protective Service, some white supremacist terror groups are plotting to carry out bioweapon attacks using the virus, for example, leaving saliva on door handles or through saliva-filled spray bottles. Just think of the Skripal-Salisbury case to assess the impact of events of that kind. What about the impact of COVID 19 on counterterrorism efforts? Paul re argues that the severe economic consequences of COVID 19 may mean that funding for counterterrorism activity across government and the private sector may be scaled back in the face of massive economic pressure. This view is shared by the International Crisis Group, who warned that the pandemic threatens global solidarity in fighting extremists, as they put it, allowing the jihadists to better prepare spectacular terror attacks. The much respected Secretary General of the UN, Antonio Gutierrez, said to the Security Council on the 9th April 2020, the threat of terrorism remains alive. Terrorist groups may see a window of opportunity to strike while the attention of most governments is turned towards the pandemic. Gutierrez also commented on the potential for terrorists to use biochemical weapons. He said the weaknesses and lack of preparedness exposed by this pandemic provide a window onto how a bioterrorist attack might unfold and may increase its risks. Non-state groups could gain access to virulent strains that could pose similar devastation to societies around the globe. I take that warning seriously. I can provide much more evidence and argument to support my considered advice that COVID-19 threatens the international solidarity and cooperation, such as it has been for its not being complete, that has been crucial to fighting ISIL and al-Qaeda. So, should COVID-19 affect empirical policy decisions and practice in relation to countering violent extremism, CVE? The short answer is that it would, in my view, be negligent, and I choose my word carefully, to lower our guard against terrorism. So, where should we go from here? Well, during the course of my interrupted prevent review, which came to its abrupt end in February 2020, in which I was deeply occupied since August 2019, I considered various themes. And to do so, I and a very proficient support team conducted 55 meetings and engagement events with a total of 476 people. Just to give you an idea of my evidence base, that task was made up of 39 one-to-one meetings with me, eight one-to-one meetings with other members of my team, six listening and engagement events in Scotland, Leeds, Newcastle, Manchester Tower, Hamlets and Luton, and two visits to European partners Denmark and Germany, as well as attendance at other events to listen to views of those interested in or affected by Prevent. Also, I asked for evidence broadly by a call for evidence, a CFE, Over 340 submissions were received in response to my CFE. The call contained a quite long indicative questionnaire highlighting key issues, encouraging respondents only to reply to the questions that were of interest to them. The number of responses per question was analysed together with a summary of the roles and experience of respondents. Work was continuing to tabulate and analyse the responses with a view to follow up of those that seemed to me to be of the greatest materiality. In addition, some bespoke research was provided to assist the review. Just one example was research by students into student attitudes by the Hillary Rodham Clinton School of Law, which is at Swansea University. All this provided a valuable body of evidence underpinning what I suppose I have to call my provisional conclusions. I also commissioned some systems mapping. The Cabinet Office's policy lab had conducted a considerable amount of work on converting into a report the output from a systems mapping workshop with national PREVENT representatives. This was intended later to include ethnographic work with people with lived experience of PREVENT. I believe it would have showed positive results for those experiences of PREVENT, obviously not in all cases, but in most. I also commissioned and was troubled by an academic literature review. An expert team produced a draft report setting out some of the academic literature on PREVENT. Academic focus has largely been around the concepts surrounding PREVENT, including radicalisation and risk factors, this provided some useful insight. That said, I've developed real concern about the quality and even the availability of genuine and empirical academic analysis of PREVENT. Some academics interested in the field, despite threadbare research, are opponents of the policy before they've written a word, some viscerally so, an attitude that sits uncomfortably alongside what I heard of positive, practical experience of PREVENT programmes. Everything the work streams I've just described provided to me remains valid. COVID-19 undermines none of it. I now turn to my own conclusions. They are based on my research and evidence, though, of course, I remain open-minded to further evidence if it appears. Should there be a PREVENT programme? Or something like it at all. There are strong and articulate voices wholly opposed to Prevent. One of those voices was the claimant in the judicial review that resulted in the whole process of my review being delayed and disrupted. The grounds of opposition can be summarised briefly. They say Prevent is racist in the sense that it discriminates against Muslims and the communities to which they belong. They say Prevent is a means of securitization and of spying by the authorities in a way that would not normally be allowed and offends human rights values. They say Prevent fails to deliver a coherent program and at the same time stigmatizes large numbers of innocent people, including children, by accusing or even merely suspecting them of being potential terrorists. I reject those complaints. There is clear evidence that whatever the weaknesses of PREVENT, and there are some, the idea and the program manifestly work to the benefit of many individuals and communities. As some PREVENT providers, including some notable community-based Muslim PREVENT providers, insisted to me, PREVENT works. Because it doesn't put a pussyfoot around what it does. It doesn't use euphemisms. It does what it says on the tin. It prevents, especially young men and women, from becoming terrorists or terrorist sympathisers. The same group told me that they were proud to go back and tell their communities that this is what they are doing, preventing people from becoming terrorists, and that they were strongly supported by their communities. There are some excellent examples, rarely spoken of, of PREVENT and its results. One exemplar is KIKIT, which is run from the Birmingham area and is now working in several other parts of the country. KIKIT was started and is run by Muslims, some with lived experience of the issues. Their success has been remarkable. Another of many examples is the organisation and running of Prevent in Leicester, where it has been contracted out by the council, Prevent Day-to-Day Management generally is the responsibility of councils, to a well-respected local charity. This has been a signal success. Indeed, one of its managers has been seconded to the Home Office as a key advisor in consequence. However, significantly less successful have been the programs run in prisons. Some have produced beneficial results. As the current independent reviewer, the excellent Jonathan Hall QC has said recently, there are some individuals who will never respond to desistance and disengagement programs and the like. We must accept that and tackle that issue through proportionate legal and management remedies. What are not acceptable are poorly conceived programs in the prisons run with little review analysis or quality control and worst of all in impossible conditions the case of Usman khan the fishmongers hall attacker is instructive as an example he was a supposed graduate of a successful program accepted as such by experts of good will however wholly credible evidence provided to me and immediately conveyed to the Home Office, reveals that, first, many prison staff with everyday access to him did not believe in the slightest that he'd been reformed at all. Secondly, prison staff were inadequately supported to deal with such cases. I understand that the current Lord Chancellor is concerned about this and is taking appropriate steps. Thirdly, there was insufficient consultation with staff. Fourth, there was little quality control of the programme meetings in that prison. Fifth, Friday prayers were an unruly event, with the radicalised running their own meeting within a meeting with impunity. And sixth, of course, unapproved, Sharia courts were being run within the prison, with penalties being administered by prisoners on prisoners including flogging. Clearly, any such situation is unacceptable. As to remedies, one of the first potential actions may have to be to separate serving terrorist prisoners from others. Some of those others may well become involved in the present circumstances through the combination of being impressionable and through the boredom of being in prison. Above all, there should be a far more structured, collegiate and scrutinised system for prison-countering violent extremism programmes. Another important instrument would be the effective reintroduction, whatever name is used, of control orders or strengthening the misnamed TPIMS. I attended some meetings of the Control Orders Review Group, CORG, in the Home Office between 2005 and five and eleven, and visited controllees to assess the effects on them of control orders. The orders were upheld by the judiciary, sometimes, of course, subject to variations. They were proportionate. Usman Khan, on release, if properly assessed, would have been an obvious candidate for a control order. In my view, their removal was a Mistaken decision by the coalition government early in its term of office and against some well-founded advice. As an option to be made available to the much overburdened parole board, their reintroduction, both as executive orders and with availability that the parole board, would be justified and beneficial. I know, and indeed I've been reminded by Jonathan Hall, that licence conditions can do almost everything a TPM can. He has recommended some additional powers of search for offenders on licence. However, my view is that a reviewable executive power to impose a control order, subject, of course, to review by the courts, or a strengthened TPM, would enhance the protection of the public in such cases next question I want to answer is whether there is adequate national structure and oversight of PREVENT. How effective is the current structure and oversight for PREVENT? That oversight includes scrutiny of local, regional and national structures, links within and across government departments, uh, examination of the role of PREVENT coordinators and existing governance scrutiny and accountability mechanisms. In my view, there are some remediable issues and remediated they must be for the necessary national structure to work. They include, one, resolving afresh where responsibility for prevent, strategy, oversight, policy and delivery respectively should sit, for example, in the Home Office or elsewhere, in or for that matter, out of government. Second, there should be Um, Urgent examination of national, regional and local governance of PREVENT to make the system suitably scrutinised by and accountable to the public. Third, there should be assurance that government departments and units within departments work together effectively on PREVENT. Fourth, there should be improved work and cooperation across the PREVENT system of policy officials, local authorities, police, intervention providers and oversight bodies in order to achieve PREVENT objectives. Fifth, there should be clear recognition that PREVENT is a counter-terrorism policy as opposed to a safeguarding policy. And sixth, there should be the creation of a permanent and functionally useful oversight mechanism. What about the police role? Well, the police are one of the bodies, for good reasons, that can refer individuals to prevent, as can schools, colleges and others. However, with the possible exception of Scotland, where the structures and scale are different, the involvement of the police after referral is seen as problematic. One allegation is that uh, excessive police involvement has led to the over-securitisation of PREVENT. My evidence-based analysis is sympathetic to the view that even where the police act with perfect propriety, which is generally the case, the perception of some important participants in the process will remain hostile to anything other than low-level police involvement. My conclusion is that after referral of an individual, CT police should step back and allow only necessary interventions by community policing unless and until a potential risk of terrorism crime becomes evident in the prevent process. Has the government given the police sufficient clarity on what their role should and should not be and why? Well, I think no. I think that more could be done to formulate clearly the limits of police involvement. Also, there needs to be greater clarity about how the pursue-prevent interface operates, which may be important in some individual cases, which might include carefully calculated policing decisions to refer particular suspects to prevent for strategic purposes connected with their inquiries. There's a serious issue about funding. There is absolutely no doubt in my mind that the current annual funding cycle under which PREVENT operates is a hindrance to good practice. It represents a barrier to meeting PREVENT's long-term objectives. It causes inconsistency and decreases efficiency and commitment. I now turn to what's called the PREVENT duty. I am unconvinced by the work to date To ensure that those who are subject to the statutory prevent duty, for example, teachers at all levels, are provided with the level and quality of training required to fulfil what would be challenging, even for those who are experts in the field. They need to understand what the prevent duty consists of and they need help in the application of it if it is to continue. In order to have confidence that local referral and channel panel decisions, that's the process for referral to prevent, are being made appropriately, consideration should be given to enhancing the amount of professional development, especially face-to-face training, available to those with obligations under the duty. I've undertaken the online prevent duty training. It is well devised, but it's incomplete. There are those, quite a number, who say there should be no prevent duty at all. Well, I have real doubts about the proposition made by some academics and professionals that the prevent duty inhibits professional judgments. Not least, as it can be argued strongly in my view, that the prevent duty does no more than put into statutory form what is in reality the existing professional duty of care incumbent on those who are subject to the duty. Teachers, doctors, police, they all have a duty of care to those they come into contact with and in most cases it's quite well understood. However, I am mindful of the conceptual concerns regarding the prevent duty, so I would not be against testing the opposing view about the effect of the duty through a pilot study in two to three priority areas of what would happen if the duty was suspended. I turn now briefly to what I call ownership and branding. I've heard views both in favour of retaining the name Prevent and changing it. I am far from convinced that there is a clear advantage in changing the name. Prevent policy should continue to be made and overall funding provided by the Home Office as part of the wider contest strategy although this would need to be considered in close consultation with other government departments, particularly those dealing with communities and children. I turn next to the controversial subject of fundamental British values. There should be an urgent review of the relevance of the British values agenda in the context of preventing and countering violent extremism. In my opinion, the uh, requirement to put forward fundamental British values has proved confusing and inconsistent for prevent programme providers and subjects alike. Consideration should be given to if and how the agenda should be linked to prevent and wider counter-extremism narratives. British values look quite different in different parts of the country and in different communities. More broadly, I suggest that the British Values Agenda might better be refocused on concepts of rights and duties. It is worth asking, what is the society or commonality within which diversity is to be defined? What is the nature of the community in which legitimate diversity is to flourish? What are the rights and duties flowing from that? An expression of shared rights and duties could prove to be a sounder testbed than a muddled set of fundamental British values, which might be very different, for example in Lansent Fried, as compared with Luton. So I turn now to emerging thinking and tasks. It will be the task of the new Prevent reviewer, still to be appointed, to develop robust recommendations for the future of the UK strategy for preventing those vulnerable to being drawn into violent radicalisation. In progressing a revised prevent policy, I would expect the re- reviewer and the government to consider seriously the limited transparency of prevent policy and practice and the lack of independent oversight and continuous review of prevent implementation the limitations of the current annual funding cycle, which I mentioned earlier, the scope for clarifying the relationship between prevent and other strategies, particularly countering extremism and other safeguarding approaches, in order to increase cooperation and consistency in some local delivery areas and tackle potential duplication where it occurs. In my view, there should be scope for clarifying the appropriate role for the police, both CT and non-CT, in prevent delivery. The government and the reviewers should consider seriously questions as to how effective the prevent duty is in practice, including the abilities of local practitioners making referrals, how well they are equipped to fulfil the role, and any unintended consequences of the duty. They should consider seriously questions regarding the British values agenda, asking, first of all, the question, well, what does it mean? They should consider questions regarding the implementation of PREVENT in prisons and probation, and they should look to learning that can be gleaned from the approaches in other countries. My um, experience and investigation leads me to suggest that the government considers the following as the most urgent improvements. First, it is important that PREVENT should be focused specifically and clearly on the prevention of violent extremism, giving its attention to those reasonably and empirically considered to be future terrorists. Second, consideration should be given to making prevent policy and delivery much more transparent, including provision of details of how referrals are made, how personal information is used, and a right of redress in the case of justified concerns. Third, consideration should be given to placing oversight of prevent implementation in the hands of a separate scrutiny agency or similar body, possibly called the Prevent Oversight Commission, the POC. This oversight organisation should have an independent chair, advisory group, and a permanent team with five core tasks. Those tasks would be to monitor the quality of the prevent processes, delivery and outcomes across the country, to provide continuity in reviewing prevent, including evaluation of the effectiveness, value for public money and relevance of the strategy, and providing longer-term findings that are given at present. They should share learning about what works and what does not work in prevent delivery. The POC should provide an avenue for receiving and resolving concerns about how prevent is being implemented, including the use of personal information. And the POC should provide an annual prevent report to the Home Secretary to be subject to debate in both Houses of Parliament, which is a rigorous form of scrutiny, if occasionally unpredictable. The park, of course, would need appropriate funding and powers to request and require national, legal and local information and observe prevent activity at all levels. Its staff would have to be developed vetted. There should also be greater coordination and collaboration by local partners on the implementation of PREVENT within regions, which, where possible, should correspond with the regions covered by police counterterrorism units. At the moment, we have 43 territorial police forces, 11 counterterrorism units, and it seems to me that we need to uh, standardise some of those areas albeit it's a forlorn hope that we will reduce the 43 territorial police areas to 11 or 12. Next, drawing on what I saw in Scotland and Denmark and heard about from Leicester, there should be scope for greater freedom within regions and local areas for how Prevent is delivered, branded and resourced, with an ability to flex resource within the region, subject to the assurance provided by the new oversight body POC. Then, consideration should also be given to whether existing government funding streams and decisions across PREVENT and elsewhere are providing the most efficient, effective and sustainable arrangements to achieve PREVENT's objectives. And finally, but importantly, there should be a wholesale revision of the procedures, processes and assessments of prisoners serving sentences for terrorism offences and others found to have been radicalised in prison. I believe the release of such prisoners should be subject to new legal provisions designed to protect the public. The parole board should be involved in all such decisions, with the chair in such cases of good seniority at least a senior circuit judge. And I do believe that it would be Much better for the system if parole board hearings in such cases could be in public as far as national security permits, or at the very least, much more transparent than at present. Countering terrorism and de-radicalisation present huge public policy, strategic and methodological challenges. They must be met in the public interest to protect our society and the polity in which we live.